Have your Bibles with you. Uh, we're going to be in primarily in John. I know we just got through John, but John chapter one. Um, you know what's so fun? Uh, sort of fun. Sometimes fun. So every Christmas, there's always this expectation that you do a Christmas series, and uh, you know pastors rack their brains like, how do you? Sometimes it feels like it's reinventing the wheel. Like we got to do a Christmas service, and like, but you know what's so cool is one thing I love is it 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 it's encouraging and it it not forces, but this season. Uh, is it makes us emphasize the importance of the incarnation, uh, and that is God coming to earth, right? Jesus. And so this year, the theme of just kind of as I was processing and praying is the idea of rescue. Because as we're going to see over the next three weeks, the rescue mission of Jesus coming is so extraordinary. It's so, like, it doesn't make any sense how, why God did it the way that he did it and how God did it, um, bringing a, a baby involved. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. And so, you know, during the Christmas season, for many, it's about, you know, gifts and, and trees and, and Santa and all these things, and that's awesome, but we obviously want to celebrate and emphasize um, Jesus. And with the idea of Jesus, I think so often it reminds me of Talladega Nights, right? It's like Jesus is like six pound, five ounce baby, right? Like, that, well, that's what we always see maybe on Christmas is just this baby in a manger, and that's true, right? Jesus did come in a manger, but what's so important, and why does it matter that Jesus was born a human? Why does that even matter? And the reality is, and hopefully if you've been with our, through our uh, series that we went through, the, the story of God and his story, Jesus' coming to earth was the beginning of this rescue mission that God had planned to save the world. It had been in the works for years and years and thousands of years. Which leads to the question, then why in the world would God start a rescue mission with a baby, right? doesn't make any sense. A vulnerable, weak baby. And so we're going to look at that. And so each of the next three weeks, we're going to look at every, the beginning of each gospel that focuses on God coming, on Jesus Jesus' birth. Mark is the only gospel that doesn't talk about Jesus' childhood at all, the gospel of Mark. Um, he just starts right with ministry. So we're going to look at John today, and then we're going to look at Matthew and Luke the next two weeks. And so I love how John starts not just at Jesus' birth, but all the way at the beginning. So if you have your Bibles, we'll be in John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 for now. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, um, nothing was made that was made. We'll stop there. And so as we're looking at this idea of Jesus coming, John starts us off all the way back at the beginning. In fact, before the beginning. Um, God makes the world and everything in it, right? And what John is letting everybody know is that this, the word was in the beginning with God. Now, what, why does that matter, right? Well, John was communicating to a Greek culture and a Roman culture, and the word that John uses is the word logos. Logos, logos, whatever. I'm not Greek, man, but that's the word. The word is very significant. In that culture, that, what that word meant in regards to the, the non-Jewish culture was that the logos was this, the, the manifestation or the physical 
uh, presence of unseen power or revelation or um, expression. It was wisdom personified. It was divine reason seen. It was the presence, the logos is the power that brings order. That's what that word meant, right? So that's when you say in the beginning was the word, it was the logos, right? Now to a Jew, when they heard the word of God, they always associated that with God himself, or the word was God, like his presence. And it's as John is starting us off saying that in the beginning, there was the Logos. He's basically saying, let me tell you about the word of God, the Logos. Let me tell you about him. And he starts all the way with before time. So we have him going, in the beginning, so the beginning is starting, there was already God and the word present. Trust me, we are going to get to a reason why we're talking about all of this. They were with, not separate. And the Logos was, was God. The Word was God. So part of Emmanuel, God with us, that we celebrate, is this idea that God came to earth, right? He is, that this, this being that before time existed was making the world, as we're going to see, he was God himself. Now, John repeats something twice, which I think is important because this is going to, I think, draw in what God is part of his plan. He says, uh, the word was with God, and again, he says again, and the word was with God. The idea that God, that, that he is in a relationship, that he exists in relationship. If we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, 3, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was covered over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and then God said, let there be light. So if in the beginning was God, the Spirit hovered over the waters, and the Word of God was present. So we have God existing in the beginning. Now, this idea of relationship, I think, is important. Um, the reason why is this. So I think many of us have heard the idea that God is love, right? The Bible tells us that God is love. Now, love cannot exist in isolation, right? Like, I could, like what, love is always a relationship. It was, it's always between two persons, objects, whatever. Like, love cannot exist in isolation. And so to have God be love, it's showing this, this relationship that's always existed, that God in Father, Son, and Spirit existing through all of time in this loving relationship, preferring one another, showing uh, love to one another. We see it throughout all of Scripture. And so this God of relationship, multi-person, singular God, existing in divine relationship through all of time, showing love. And the Bible tells us that all things were made through him. Now, why does this matter? It matters because we're going to see God opening up this relationship and inviting humans in. We're going to see that God part of the whole way and why he created the world was to invite humans to experience his love. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to race through it, but I'm going to tell you, for us to understand the significance of Jesus coming, we have to understand the story as a whole. And I'm going to try and rally through this story fast. But I'm going to start from Genesis, and we're going to rally through the Bible in a pretty quick story so we can understand the context of why it mattered that Jesus even came. And so we have God making the world and everyone in it and everything in it. And every time God would make something, he would say, this is good. This is good. And so we see God make this perfect world. He calls it good. This, he's creating the universe and everything in it. And it's beautiful and it's perfect. But when we see that God made human beings, he said something different. He said, they're very good. 
Humans are very good. And we, the Bible defines humans very different than anything in creation. He says that they were made in the image of God. That humans, we, our purpose, our design was to image God. And that's interesting. What does that mean? Part of imaging God is representation, right? That we are communicating something about God and how we live, how we interact with other people, how we, we're, we're this is, it's this idea of imaging, communicating, reflecting, pointing people back to our creator. But another aspect of image or being like God in regards to how we were made and how we were designed is that God is relationship. And so we were created to be in relationship with God and with others. I've never met a human being that says, no, I don't want to be around anyone ever, and I never want anybody to love me. Like, we need to be loved. We need to be, part of humanness is relationship with other people. And so God makes humans to be in relationship with himself. This eternal, multi-person, three-in-one God opens up this relational context that he's always existed in for all of eternity, and he invites human beings to participate and interact with him. And so humans walked with God in the garden. If we were to read Genesis 1 through 3, we'd have time to see that with Adam and Eve. So they had access to God's presence. God was literally with them. But also they were acceptable to God's standard. Humans were perfect. We were right. Was, we, were, we were right. There wasn't anything we looked at or something like, man, I just messed up. I'm jacked up. Whatever. This world was perfect, beautiful, and good. And God was the king. That was the original design. God was the king. He was ruling this world, and he was letting humans participate in that. And he was using them to image him. There was no pain. There was no death. There was no suffering. There was no sadness. This world was beautiful and right. And there in a lush garden, he put humans and had all the food they could need. It was good. But not only that, humans were as they should be. We Humans were created right. We were perfect. We didn't have any sin, no messed up. We didn't have any baggage. We didn't have any trauma. It was none of that. We were right as we should be, perfect with purpose. We were right with God and acceptable to God, but also we were created to image him. We had a clear purpose on our life. But also humans were in a loving relationship with God. We got to experience God's love in a way that no other being had ever experienced. We got to experience this unhindered, unfettered love that the creator of the universe has with humans. We were in this perfect state. Everything was good. We had unlimited access. But it was crazy. Even then we had everything we wanted, humans were not satisfied with God. And we see they believed a lie, they rebelled against God, and they sinned against God, and this perfect world was broken. The world of God was now corrupted, okay, and... Sin invaded, causing all sorts of problems, as I think we've all experienced. Pain and suffering and injustice all began to run rampant. The presence of God was hindered. Humans could no longer walk and come into God's presence because now we were defiled. We were sin, and God being this perfect and holy God, not that he would mean to, it just destroys imperfection. So now we don't have access to God. We don't have the ability to be with God in the same context. And we see the first time here that humans begin to hide from God and hide from each other. Hiding begins. Shame sets in. Hiding. 
the image of God as we were made is now distorted. We still image. We sometimes still can image God, but we also image other things. And sometimes we misrepresent God. Maybe we, we image him in a way that is not accurate. I think many of us have experienced that. If you've gone to church at any point in your life, you've had image bearers. You've had fellow Christians or fellow people that are following Jesus hurt you and wound you and not really represent God. And some people say they're all hypocrites, and sometimes, you know, that's true. We're broken. We're messed up. We don't function the way we're supposed to always function. That is the state that humans were in. Humans were corrupted in many ways, and we didn't function as we were designed. And what we see is that humanity has been functioning that way for the last, for thousands of years. And you know what's crazy? I find this fascinating. Humans, we have been trying to get back to the garden. We want to live forever. We want to be right and perfect. We don't want to have flaws and blemishes. We wanted to be live in a kingdom where, where it's good and holy and good and perfect. We want to be a part of a kingdom that is flourishing, that's without pain and suffering and be near to God. We want to be right. We don't want to have flaws. We don't want to be messed up. We want to deal with our stuff. We've been trying to get back to the garden for all this time. It's almost as though we're orphaned beings longing for a home and not knowing how to get there. So how are we made right? Well, God, in his goodness, pursues humanity. He continues to pursue a creation that he loves, a people that he loves, even though they rejected him, even though they rebelled against him, he loves them. And he pursues humans, and he starts over, and he, he chooses a new person that he's going to build this new kingdom with. His name's Abraham. And Abraham had no kids. He was older. He was in his 80s. He had no, him and his wife had no children. And he promised this guy, I'm going to give you a son. And this son is going to become a people. And this people is going to become a nation. And I'm going to use that nation to bless the entire world. And he did. And it says, the Bible says that Abraham believed that promise and God counted that belief to him as righteousness. So we see faith entering into the story of God. And Abraham did. And he had a son. And his son became a nation, and his offspring became a blessing. And we see, although not the same, the kingdom of God returning. God was the king of this nation. He was the one that ruled. God gave this nation a way of living called a law that allowed him, them, to image him again. And God gave them a temple for his presence to come. They could have access to God. It was very limited. It wasn't the same that they just didn't get to walk in with God and be like, what's up? Jesus is my homeboy, right? It wasn't like that. There was this one room and only once a year, the high priest could go once a year and that was the only time they were going in the presence of God, right? It was very limited, but yet, but he was, but he was there, right? God's presence had returned. God gave them a way to deal with them not being right, to deal with their sin. It was called sacrifice. It's kind of gruesome and bloody, and sometimes it doesn't make any sense, but it was an opportunity for humans to let something else pay the penalty for their rebellion against God, and God was an animal. And for that moment, even if it just be for a little bit, they were right. They were right with God, and they were right with one another. God was their king. But you know what they did? They asked for another king. Again, they rejected God. And God gave them their king. And each king got progressively worse and worse and worse. They had a good one, David, and then Solomon, and then it kind of went down from there. And all these kings began to distort, and eventually they disobeyed, rebelled against God, and were led off into captivity. This nation of Israel failed again. 
You see, they, they too, as they disobeyed the law, were wanting to define good and evil on their own. They weren't trusting God, and they were sent to captivity. And here we see again God's presence leaving. The Bible tells us that his presence left the temple. The temple was destroyed. The way to be right with God's sacrifice was cut off. And again, the kingdom of God was destroyed. There was no king. There was no kingdom. They were in captivity. That was Babylon. They were in captivity into Persia. Persia, king, allowed a nation of Israel to come back. They rebuilt the temple. It wasn't the same. It was kind of a sad temple. They rebuilt the city. They still didn't have a kingdom because they were in captivity. They, it was sad, but, but we see these inklings starting to come back. Then there was Greece, and then there was Rome. And then something weird happens. God goes silent. After Malachi, we have no scripture until the New Testament, until Jesus comes on the scene. So suddenly, now they're in captivity. All their hopes and promises of a king ruling forever and the kingdom of God and all these things is wiped out. And now, from our perspective today, God wasn't speaking. So what did the nation of Israel do? Well, before, throughout all of this story, if we were to go back, we see that God was always promising them a savior. He was promised them that, you know, he told Eve, out of your, your offspring, somebody's going to come and they're going to crush the snake that tempted you, essentially. He promised King David that a son will always be on his throne. He promised Moses that there would be a prophet like him to lead the people. He was always making a promise that a savior was going to come. And for a Jewish person, they called that, that word is Messiah, Messiah, savior anointed one. That's what it means. And so in captivity, and as they returned, the Jewish people, the Israel people, began to look again for the Messiah. Their hope was that the Messiah would come, and, and what they had come to believe about the Messiah is that he would come, and he would free them from oppression, and he would establish his kingdom on the earth and his throne, and he would be their king, and the kingdom would be restored, and everyone would live happily ever after. That was their expectation. And so they began to look for Messiah. And the Messiah that they built in their mind, then if he's going to be a conquering king, he has to be powerful. And he has to be a military genius. And he has to be miraculous. And he has to be strong. And he has to set the world like everybody has to see this amazing king come and conquer Rome. And this is what they're waiting for. So the kingdom restored, but also the question of how are we made right is still there. You see, Israel came to believe, and this is partially true, that the reason they were conquered, the reason that, that God allowed Babylon to conquer them and then Greece and Greek, uh, uh, Persia and, and uh, Rome was because they disobeyed God's commandments, which is definitely part of the problem. Their heart had left God, but it manifested in them rebelling against God. So what did they say? They said, well, in order for the Messiah to come, then we must be right. We must do the right things. We cannot mess up. We cannot hinder the Messiah from coming. So how are we going to do that? Well, we need to obey the law. We need to obey God's commandments. Well, how do we know we're doing it right? When he says, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, what does that mean? When he says, do not work on the Sabbath, what does that mean? Like, what's considered work? Like, if I, walk, if I run a marathon, is that work? <sighs> yeah, that's work, right? But what happens if I run a 5K? Where's the line, right? What if I want to walk 
a million miles. Like, what, what, is the, what is the expectation, right? And so rabbis, which are basically teachers, began to come on the scene more and more, and they begin to, to define the laws in different ways. And just like any like, religion in the world, right, as it gets older and bigger, it starts having different um, like groups, denominations, right? And so some would say, this rabbi says that it's 500 yards and that we can eat this, this, and this, but we can't do this. We've got to wear this thing. And there's these different fractions of, of Jewish culture that began, and they follow different rabbis. But the goal was the same. We've got to obey God so the Messiah comes back. We can't mess up. And so rabbis and these religious leaders grew in prominence in the culture to the point where they were as powerful as any political leader. They were the leaders of the nation because they had to be. Because if the nation did not obey just the right way, the Messiah wouldn't come. And if the Messiah didn't come, then we're still in captivity. And we're still in captivity. We're going to lose our minds. We have to get the Messiah here. This is the culture that was present when Jesus came on the scene. Which is interesting about all of this is that they were looking for the kingdom, right? They wanted the kingdom of God. They were, they were looking for a way to be right, but they weren't looking for God's presence, which is weird because in prophecy they said, Emmanuel, God with us, that there's this, the presence of God would return. They weren't looking for God's presence. Israel needed to be rescued, but no one knew how. The people were tired, they were frustrated, they were exhausted. I mean, they were on the verge of civil war at any moment. That's why when we see, we had time, we look at Jesus coming on the scene, they were so meticulous, like they, they didn't wear the right things. He said, you tithe your herbs in your kitchen. Like that's how, like we got them, if I get, if I get like dill or I get like basil, I need to like make sure I give 10% of my basil because I do not want to mess up. Like that's how strict it became. We got to have the Messiah come. And then John, so let's jump back into John. So this is the culture. This is what's going on. This is the volatility that's going on. And then John says, John 1.14 says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I'll jump down to 16. And from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who was at the Father's side, but he, talking about Jesus, has made him known. And so in the midst of this, this tension, a baby's born. The word becomes flesh. The Bible tells us that Jesus left his glory, left his power, left his eternity, left the cosmos, and he came to earth in a, as a baby. Like, the king of the world, the creator of the heavens and the earth, like, came and became this vulnerable, weak baby born to a family. The God outside of time entered into time. 
the strongest, the greatest of all time became weakness. The king of all glory was born into obscurity in a barn, in a, in a shepherd village, really. That's what Bethlehem was. And Isaiah 7.14 tells us that this would happen. It says, God would be with us, Emmanuel. What's so interesting here is that God pres- God's presence returned, but no one was looking for it. But also, what I find fascinating, and I'm going to just touch on this in a few seconds, is that you have to keep in mind, before this moment, God's presence was dangerous. The holy, all-consuming, powerful God's presence was dangerous. Nobody just could come to God whenever they wanted. They would be destroyed, not because he's bad, but because he's perfect. It's like trying to run into the sun. The sun's not bad, it's just on fire. You know what I'm saying? You, just, you get destroyed. And so God's presence was always dangerous. It was unapproachable. But this verse tells us something very interesting. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there is the word that we, it also could be ta- translated tabernacle. Now, what's a tabernacle? In Jewish culture, the tabernacle, before they built the temple, was this tent. Tabernacle means tent. But the tabernacle was the tent while the nation of Israel was wandering out in the wilderness, right, with Moses, God's presence came and he dwelt in this tent and it was a place where humans could interact with God again. It was kind of the precursor to the temple. And God would be in the Holy of Holies, he'd be separated, he'd be off in, in back in this, behind this big veil. And so it says that the, the word, the logos became, and it came in tabernacled with us, came to us. So then rather than people coming and going to the tabernacle or going to the temple and making sure they put on their best and making sure they're worthy and making sure they're doing everything necessary to approach this holy and perfect God, this holy and perfect God came and put on flesh and dwelt among us and tabernacled with us. The tabernacle, the temple came to humans. Rather than us working to go to the presence of God, the presence of God came to us as this weak baby. The presence of God was no longer approachable. The presence of God was approaching us, pursuing us in physical form. The word left God's presence and came to humans so that we could be in God's presence. That is the the good news of why this is important. Jesus just didn't come, you guys, to show us a better example. I think so often people are like, well, Jesus came to show us a better way to live. He did, okay? No doubt about it. Jesus lived awesome. If you follow Jesus in every capacity, your life will be great. It's, it's impossible, but it's awesome. Jesus came to show us a better life, but he didn't just come to show us a better life. He came to show us the Father. So why? So that we can know him. Why? So that we could be with him. That's why Jesus came. It wasn't just to say, hey, here's a bunch of more rules for you to live your life so you can be better. He came so that we could be with him. He made a way for us to know God. You see, another aspect of all of this is that God determined in his law requirements for humans to be right with God. And he laid it out. And if you've ever read If you ever want to know what's required of humans to be perfect with God apart from Jesus, go read the book of Leviticus. If you get through it, which it is dry, (laughs) 
you will be beyond, beyond overwhelmed. I mean, from what you wear to what you eat. Now, that was to a Jewish people, and I'm not, it's, it's a, but that's just the, like, to be, to image God right, to be image bearers again, to be in relation with God, there was requirements to be right with God. God, it sounds harsh, demanded perfection and demands perfection. Now, how then can humans be right with God if none of us are perfect? If you're perfect here, I want to congratulate you. You're only one. I'm not perfect. We're, we, we are, we, we're jacked up a lot of times, right? Like, we're trying our best, but man, we screw up. How are we made right with God if we can't be perfect? Well, the Bible tells us that part of Jesus coming, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, beholding the glory of God and all of these things, is that Jesus is the true image bearer of God. He came in human, as a human to be human. He lived the life that we cannot live perfectly. He lived every law that God required. He was perfect. He did everything necessary. He was the perfect image bearer of God. Because we were hindered from God's presence, we were hindered from knowing God, Jesus lived it perfect. And so, that was part of it. So remember that. Secondly, because we screw up, because we've messed up, because we can't do it, that the Bible calls is sin. Sin literally means to miss the mark. It's not that we're being rebellious, because sometimes we are. That's called trespass. Like, there's the line. I'm doing it, right? That's rebellion. But sinning is an archery term. You're aiming for the target, and you miss. It's not like you're trying to miss. You're trying to hit the bullseye. You just can't do it. You're not good at it. Sometimes you hit it, sometimes you don't. But the Bible says that because we're imperfect, because we can't do that, the consequence of that is that we are under a curse of death. So how are we supposed to pay that penalty? We can't unless we die, right? So Jesus not only lived this life we can't live, but he went to the cross and he paid our penalty for sin. And here's what's where it gets really cool, is that the Bible tells us that when we accept what Jesus offers, we get credit for his perfect righteousness. So when God looks at us, he sees his son's perfection. We get credit for being perfect. Now we are acceptable to God because Jesus is perfect for our, on our behalf. But also all of the garbage and the mess up that we do and continue to do has been paid for on the cross. And so we don't have to work off our error and our sin. We don't have to pay God back. We are forgiven because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. And so his life gives us righteousness and his death gives us forgiveness. And that is how we are made right with God. And what's interesting is that because of what Jesus has done, Jesus was cut off from that, that perfect, harmonious relationship that he experienced for all of eternity. On the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was separated from God's presence so that we would never have to be. His relationship was severed so that we could have a relationship with God. So that we could be brought in. Because the word became flesh, we can now know God. Because Jesus became flesh, we can now be right with God and be acceptable to God. And that is what a follower of Jesus is. It's every day just accepting the imitation of God's righteousness and God's forgiveness that's offered. Jesus is saying, I've done everything necessary. 
right? I've lived the life that you're trying to live. And what happens, and this is what the craziest thing happens, is when we go, yes, God, I accept what you've done. I can't do it. I'm tired of trying. He changes our heart. And then suddenly, all the stuff you were trying to do, you start doing. You start wanting to do it. You start wanting to do the good, the, the stuff that it's like, why am I caring about people? Why do I even care at all? Like, stuff starts changing inside. And this is the beautiful thing about what Jesus has done, is where we are all trying to be a better person and try to do all this good, and it seems like it's just hard, and we're like, oh, it's so frustrating because people are people, especially at the holidays, man. Whew, brings out the best. Jesus, when we accept what he has done for us, it changes our heart, and our desires change. And we begin to accomplish the very things we set out to accomplish, but now we're doing it. It's almost natural, more natural. It's more of a byproduct. We want to do it. It changes us from the inside out because the Bible tells us that his Holy Spirit now comes and lives in us. The tabernacle where God's presence dwelt was a building. It was a tent, a building in Jesus. Now the Bible tells us that the presence of God dwells in humans. We are the temple. Have you heard of that before? We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that is the part of the good news of what God's about. And so as the worship team comes up, we're going to close out remembering what Jesus has done through communion. God's posture to us is the same. Whether you've been following Jesus for 20 years or one day or not at all, God's invitation is still the same. He is still arms wide open saying, I've done everything necessary for you to be with me. And for those that have been following Jesus, we're like, this is why we partake of communion. We remember what Jesus has done, that his body was broken for us, his blood was shed for us. As followers of Jesus, that's what we do. If you do not know Jesus, if you never put your faith in him, you never trusted him, this is an opportunity. You can do that. It's simply accepting through prayer what God has done for you. You're saying, Jesus, like, I can't, I can't do enough to be right. I accept that you've done everything necessary. Forgive me of my sin. I trust you. And you can come and partake of communion for the first time ever as you're celebrating what Jesus has done. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for what you've done. Jesus, we thank you that you've come in weakness and in vulnerability, Lord, so that we could be with you. We thank you that as we celebrate you this season, um, and we're reminded of that, Lord, amongst all of the fun and the excitement and the family, Lord, we, we pray that you'll remind us of your presence, that you are with us, not just 2,000 years ago when you came as a baby, that you're with us now. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name.